Uh, if you would, take your Bibles and, and turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 uh, this morning. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, if you're looking for Jonah, Jonah's in that section uh, that we call the minor prophets. So after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, you have 12 books in a row that we call the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Uh, so join me as we read from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning? Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord." Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Illumine our hearts and minds this morning that we would understand what has been written, that we would receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. We pray that even in this, uh, through Jonah, that you would help us to see the greater Jonah, the Lord Jesus himself. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, having finished the book of Acts this morning, we're we're starting a brief six-week series through the book of Jonah. And anytime we begin a, a new series, it's important to try to back up just a little bit, give a little bit of an overview of the book to set the stage for the messages in the series. Uh, And so as we we come to the book of Jonah this morning, I'd like to say just four uh, brief things to kind of help us get our bearings. Um, Actually, it's five. I listed, I said four, but there's five things that I'd like to share before we get into the the meat of the message and the passage itself, uh, just to kind of help us get oriented with regard to the series and the book of Jonah itself. First, uh, it probably goes without saying, and so therefore it's worth saying, that Jonah is a familiar book. And as with things that are often familiar, sometimes we can miss the point. Something becomes too familiar. We stop paying attention to it because we think we understand what this is all about, and then we miss some of the major emphases uh, in the scriptures. As an example, what do you think of most when you hear the word Jonah? The whale or the fish doesn't say it's a whale, but we think we think of the fish uh, that and that then that dominates the way we think about the book. We think that this book is all about a fish. The fish is mentioned twice. It's an important part of the book, but it's not the main point. But we become so familiar with it. All of the artwork about Jonah, it's Jonah and the fish. It's Jonah and the fish. Any any of the old kind of Renaissance artwork you look at with Jonah, it's always Jonah and the fish. That's kind of how it's presented. Uh, but if we consume ourselves with the fish and then we miss the point, we think that the book revolves around the fish. So then we get caught up in all these debates about the historical nature of the fish. What kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? What did Jonah smell like when he was vomited up on the dry land? Was his skin completely bleached? 
What about the story of that sailor who fell off the boat and survived being swallowed by a fish that always comes up when we talk about the fish in Jonah? I hasten to tell you, the fish is real, story's true, but it's not the main point of the book. And we can become so familiarized, we can feel so familiar with the book that we miss the bigger point. So first, it's a familiar book. Second, it's a brief book. It's only four chapters. It's a pretty short book. But despite its brevity, it is packed full. It's a rich book. It's often said of Scripture that Scripture is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and accessible enough for a child to safely wade in. So there's lots of threads throughout this book, and we're not going to pull on all of them. Uh, you just you can't do it in six weeks. But it's a rich book, despite the fact that it is a short book. Third, it's an unusual book. It's a unique book among the minor prophets, among the, the whole of Scripture itself, really. There's no other prophetic book like it. It's largely biography. Uh, most of the prophets, we learn God's message through the things that the prophets are saying themselves. You know, Isaiah comes and he's got a message. Jeremiah's got a message. Ezekiel's got a message. And they're preaching all over the place. Even the minor prophets are like that. Jonah has a message that's five words long. That's the only message we get from Jonah. When he speaks to the Ninevites, it's five words in the Hebrew. It's more in English. But we learn from Jonah largely through biography. We learn from Jonah's experience the message that God is speaking to us in this part of his word. His life in that regard becomes a mirror for us. In his particular experience, we're to see something of our own hearts. And as Jonah is confronted with God's grace, God's character, and God's mission in the world, so are we. And that's, that's the point of the book. So fourth, we should say that Jonah is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He points ahead to one greater than himself. Uh, we'll, we'll come to this later, I'm sure. But Jesus tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Gospels that uh, when they come demanding a sign, give us a sign so that we can know that what you're saying is true. Jesus says, the only sign you're going to get, because you're an unbelieving generation, is the sign of Jonah, uh, namely death and resurrection, Jesus' own death and resurrection, that he, like Jonah, will descend to death and will rise again and proclaim repentance and forgiveness. So Jonah is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He's always pointing us ahead. And then finally, this is a book about mission, and it's a book about mercy. And those two things go hand in hand. It's a book about God's sovereign, gracious mission to bring the nations to repentance and to do it through his people. But as we'll see, it's God's people who need to learn mercy in order to be prepared for this mission. And as in Jonah, sometimes that is a hard lesson to learn. Because while we may readily receive God's mercy, sometimes expecting that we deserve it, we sometimes don't think that anybody else does. Or that maybe particular people don't deserve God's mercy. And so we, like Jonah, need to hear the message again that God is compassionate and mercy, uh, merciful towards his people and also through his people to the nations. 
So there's a little bit of an intro to the book of Jonah. This morning, as we try to look at these three verses here at the beginning, I want to look at three points in particular. We want to look first at Jonah's context. We want to look second at Jonah's call from God. And then finally, we want to look at Jonah's confusing response to this call from God. Uh, First, let's look at Jonah's context. First verse tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. We don't have any other information about Jonah in the book itself uh, because it's assumed that we'll know who he is from other parts of the scripture. There's one other place in particular that sheds a little bit of light on Jonah's context, when he was living, what was going on around the time of his ministry. Uh, You can look this up later, but in 2 Kings 14, we're told that Jonah was a prophet who served during the reign of a king named Jeroboam II, around kind of the early 8th century B.C. And it's important to kind of understand what was going on in that time period because some of it has an impact on why Jonah does what he does. So here's a few things we know about this time period. Uh, Israel and Judah... It's a divided kingdom. Israel is in the north. Judah is in the south. So this is after David, after Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom divides in two, north and south. One of the things that we know about the northern kingdom is this. Every king in the north was a bad king. There are no good kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. If you take a Bible test and somebody asks you, name one good king in the northern kingdom of Israel, you've got the answer. Now you can say none of them. Uh, All of the kings in the northern kingdom were wicked. It often describes them as doing evil in the sight of the Lord, repeating the sins of previous kings who set up these gross places of idolatry for the people leading them away from the living God. There are no good kings in the north. But in spite of that, God shows favor to the king under whom Jonah served, a guy named Jeroboam II. During Jeroboam's time, leading up to that time, Israel has struggled against many enemies, one of whom was the Assyrian Empire, a a kind of a barbarous, cruel, wicked people who dominated the Near East, the ancient Near East, through their wickedness. Uh, They were notorious for their wickedness, so much so that at certain points, they didn't even have to do anything They could just threaten other nations, and those nations would start paying them tribute, kind of like the mafia. You know, just stay away. We'll we'll pay you money so that you won't invade us and uh, be cruel to us. And for many years leading up to Jonah's time, that had been the case. Assyria had dominated Israel through threat of violence. Israel was paying them tribute kind of living in their shadow, living in fear of what they would do. But in Jeroboam's time, there had been a decline in the power of the Assyrian Empire. And because of that, Israel had a time of prosperity, a time of peace, a time of blessing from God despite their wickedness. And the news of that prosperity came to them through Jonah who spoke to King Jeroboam, this wicked king, and told Jeroboam that he would expand Israel's borders back to what they used to be and that there would be a time of prosperity and peace under his reign. In other words, Jonah brought a message of mercy and grace 
to a wicked king. Something that we will see in a moment he refuses to do when it comes to going to Nineveh. This is his context. We know from other prophets of this this period that this prosperity in Israel did not lead them to deeper obedience and repentance in the northern kingdom. In fact, it seems that it led in the opposite direction. Their response to God's kindness was not repentance, but rather indifference and even an atmosphere of complacency and superiority. You see, the whole of Scripture reminds us that whenever God has a people for himself, he is always setting them aside to be a light to the people around them. Sometimes that means they go out to the people. Other times that means people come in to Israel or to Judah because the light of God's glory is drawing them in. But in this period of time, Israel said, we'll take God's mercy for ourselves, but it will terminate with us. And we will not look outward toward anyone else, especially not these Assyrians who have been so cruel and wicked to us. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. They were meant to be the vehicle of God's blessing and presence in the rest of the world. But here, during Jonah's day, they had developed the attitude, and in some ways they were uh, deserving of God's mercy, that it was for them and not for anyone else. So Jonah was happy to tell the king of Israel, good things are coming, Jeroboam. Good things are coming for you. You're going to expand the borders. There's going to be prosperity. There's going to be peace. But when Jonah is called to prophesy to a bad king in Nineveh that there's mercy from God, uh, it's a no-go for him. All of this context helps us to see the bigger point of the book of Jonah. And it forces this question on us, or raises this question rather for us. How do we, as God's people, seek and foster a heart of mercy like the heart of God? How do we keep from becoming those people who receive grace but don't give it? Who are happy to take mercy from God but are reluctant to show mercy to others? And part of the answer of the book is that it comes through the experience of death and resurrection and of our embracing God's free mercy for us as a gift and not something that we deserve. We see a little bit of this context coming up in Jonah's call from God. So there's Jonah's context. Let's look for a second at Jonah's call from God. Uh, Notice verse 2. It's very straightforward. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Arise, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. What is God calling Jonah to do? It's very unusual to have a prophet in Israel go to a foreign nation to announce judgment. But that's what God is calling Jonah to do. Normally the prophets would condemn other nations, but they would do it within Israel or within Judah. Just talk about Egypt, talk about Assyria, talk about whoever. But they would do it within the nation. But here, God calls Jonah actually to physically go to a foreign nation, uh, no less the nation of Assyria, the empire of Assyria. Nineveh at this time was not the capital of Assyria, but it was an important place within the empire. And as the kingdom was kind of, of Assyria was in a little bit of a decline, it was not unusual for the 
emperor, the king of Assyria, to be in Nineveh, which is what we find in the story. Here's the question, though. Is God calling Jonah to extend mercy to Nineveh, or is he calling him to pronounce judgment upon him, upon Nineveh? We notice the call is for Jonah to call out against Nineveh because their evil has come up before them. You might think, well, why does Jonah Jonah run then? Wouldn't he want God to execute justice on these wicked people? Why would he not go and announce this coming judgment? There's, there's more answer to come at the end, so we don't want to give away the whole thing. But at the very least, we should say that as a prophet, Jonah knew that God had made certain promises. That when he announced judgment upon a people, that if they turned and repented, that God would be faithful to show mercy to those people. So that in the announcement of judgment, there was always wrapped up in that an offer of mercy. There's always good news wrapped up with the bad news. Bad news, we're, we're all sinners. We all stand under the judgment of God, and that bad news is always sent out with the accompanying good news, that if we turn and if we look to God in repentance and faith, that there's forgiveness, that there is renewal and restoration to God through faith in his promises. Jonah knows that even though he's being called to announce judgment on Nineveh, which is what he ends up doing, that wrapped up in that warning is an offer of grace. Though they are evil and wicked, there is an offer of grace and mercy. That's Jonah's call from God. I'd like to spend the remainder of our time focusing on Jonah's confusing response. Jonah's confusing response. Notice verse 3. Jonah rose to flee... God says, arise and go. Jonah arises and flees, and he goes to Tarshish. Now, what in the world is Tarshish? The short answer is we don't really know. Uh, We don't know where where this is or what Jonah would have considered Tarshish, but here's, here's what we do know. Tarshish would have been, at that point, the farthest most uh, location away from Israel. In other words, Jonah doesn't just say, I'm not going to Nineveh. He says, I'm going as far away from Nineveh as I can possibly go. Now, why? Why does Jonah disobey? Why does he do it to such an extent? Well, we can say a few things here about why Jonah refuses to obey God. At root, Jonah cannot reconcile God's justice with God's mercy, particularly when it comes to the Assyrians. It made sense for him, for the Lord, to bless Israel, even with a wicked king, because they're Israel. But Nineveh, the wicked Assyrians, this would have been like sending a Jew to Nazi Germany in 1941 to announce judgment and the offer of mercy for them. You show up on the streets of Germany in 1941 as a Jew pronouncing judgment on the nation, you know what's going to happen. You also have some level of animosity towards these people for their cruelty, for their wickedness against your people. Jonah would have felt the very same thing. Why would the Lord send me to this wicked people to offer them mercy? 
to warn them of coming judgment so that they might escape that judgment. Where is God's justice for sin? Why is God not simply wiping out these pagans who are outside of God's covenant people? They're enemies. How can God show mercy to enemies who only deserve his justice? Jonah couldn't reconcile God's justice with God's mercy. And we see this struggle with God's justice and mercy throughout the book. We'll see it especially at the end. But what we see particularly here is that Jonah is extremely selective in who he believes should receive God's mercy, namely anyone but Nineveh. I'm not going there. The sailors, they receive, he doesn't have any problem with the sailors on the ship receiving mercy. He doesn't have any problem receiving mercy himself, but not Nineveh. And so in a nutshell, Jonah disobeys because he is acting as if he knows better than God. He can't make sense of God's initiative of grace toward Nineveh, and so he refuses to obey it. He acts as if he is God rather than submitting to God as God, and so he doesn't go and instead flees, runs in the extreme opposite direction, tries to get as far away not only from Nineveh as he can, but also from the Lord. He gets on the ship to go to Tarshish. Notice what it says. From the presence of the Lord. He finally gets to the ship. He pays the fare. He goes down into it. Everything is descending. He's going down into the ship. Later, he's going to go down into the fish. Jonah's going down in his journey here. He gets on the ship, goes down into the ship. He goes with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He's emphasizing this. Jonah's not just disobeying. He's trying to get away from God's presence but we know as well as Jonah that this is an impossible task. And so there's a bit of irony in the author telling us that Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord because it's an impossible thing. The highest heights, the de deepest depths, even the darkness is light to you. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. There's nowhere that we can go that God is not there. And for many, that is good news. That is a comfort. But for Jonah, it was not what he wanted. Because he knew that he was disobeying God. Now, it's at this point that Jonah's story brings into clear view the universal problem that we share with Jonah. We tend to run from God in our sin rather than running to him in repentance. We also tend to refuse obedience to God's commands when we don't understand them or cannot see how things will turn out if we obey. Let's talk about running from God in our sin for just a moment. I want you to think with me for a second about Jonah's story. Does it remind you of any other part of the story of Scripture, the story of God's redemptive history? Think about it for a second. Jonah has a clear command from God. Arise, go, call out against Nineveh. He explicitly does the opposite of that command. He arises, he flees, he runs away from Nineveh and goes to, or tries to go to Tarsus. The root of that disobedience is pride. I know better. I will be God. I will decide for myself what is right, what is wrong, and I'll do what I think is best. And then he runs from the presence of God. What does that sound like to you? If we're paying attention, 
It sounds like the Garden of Eden. It sounds like Adam and Eve all over again. And it shouldn't surprise us that that's the case. Because all throughout Scripture, that same pattern is repeated by God's people over and over again. God says to do this, and we say, I think that this is what I need to do. And then in our sin and in our guilt and in our shame, we run from the presence of God. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did when God showed up in the garden in the cool of the day. What do they do? They run and hide from the presence of God. God seeks them out even as he will seek out Jonah. We run from God in our sin when what we most desperately need is to run to God in repentance for our sin. To find that this is a God who will welcome sinners who have previously run from him in their sin. This is a God who welcomes people in repentance and forgives them of all their sin. Even as Jonah himself will experience, though it doesn't seem that he learns the lesson at the end of it. What do we do when we find ourselves struggling with this tension? Being in sin and wanting to run from God in it. We often disconnect ourselves from God's people, which is the very place where God is at work among his people, helping us to grow in repentance and in faith. We disconnect ourselves from God's people rather than seeking grace and help and encouragement to follow Jesus faithfully. But what would it be like if the church were a place that welcomes sinners who humbly repent? And who humbly confess their struggle with sin, who humbly acknowledge that they struggle to obey what God says. What if the church were a place where a culture of grace permeated all that we do and all that we say so that sinners would not be tempted in their sin to run from the church, to run from God, but would say, this is a place where I can find refuge from my sin. This is a place where the people of God will welcome me in. And demonstrate to me the very grace that Jesus has given to them. This is a place where everybody's on the same level playing field. Because we all stand before the cross. Equally, desperately in need of God's forgiveness. All receiving it in the same way. Not out of merit. Not because one of us has our foot in the door a little more than another. But because we are recipients of grace from God in spite of what we deserve for our sin. Jonah ran from God because, in a sense, that's the logical thing to do uh, when you haven't embraced the grace of God for yourself in Jesus. But when you know that grace, when you know that there's forgiveness for sins, then you won't want to run from God in your sin. You'll want to run to him with it because he is a God who shows mercy and has compassion on sinners who come to him in faith and repentance. We tend to run from God instead of running to him. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can't run from God. We also tend to refuse obedience to God's commands when we don't understand them or can't see how things will turn out if we obey. We often question, probably for many of us, one of the main things we often struggle with is forgiveness. God, Jesus commands all kinds of radical things. Love your enemies, um, turn the other cheek, uh, love those who hate you. Your brother sins against you innumerable times. Keep offering to him forgiveness. 
There's ways to flesh that out and add nuance and so forth. But at the end of the day, Jesus gives clear-cut commands about how we're to love and to treat one another in response to the grace that he shows us. When we struggle with those things, what help is there for us? What's the way forward, the way out, so that we don't end up like Jonah, running uh, and not obeying, but rather refusing to obey out of prideful disobedience? Two things, two things. We need to see the fact of the good news for us. We need to see the fact of the good news for us. We need to see specifically that in Jesus' cross and resurrection, mercy and justice are finally reconciled in a demonstrable saving act that is all focused upon Christ that he receives justice for our sin that we deserve. And because of that, he is able to give to all of those who believe in him mercy and forgiveness. You see, God does not show mercy at the expense of his justice. He does not undermine his justice by forgiving. He satisfies his justice at the cross. But the good news is that he satisfies it not on us, but in a substitute, a redeemer, his own son who gave his life in our place. What we need to know is the same thing that Jonah needed to know, that the compassionate heart of God finds a way to reconcile justice and mercy in a way that we are fully forgiven and there's no justice hanging over our heads waiting for us to mess up. And if you have grasped that grace, that forgiveness, that God accepts you on the basis of what Jesus has done in your place, then in a sense, there's nothing that can turn off the faucet of God's mercy in your heart towards others. Because you see that you have received something undeserving. You've received something in spite of what you actually deserve for your sin, and therefore you're freed to show it to others. In order to be obedient to God's call, to show mercy to others, we need to see that Jesus became obedient for us all the way to death on a cross. His final recorded prayer before his crucifixion was a way of saying to his father, I will trust you and I will obey you no matter what. And the good news is that he did that for you. He did that for me. He did that for us, that we might know mercy. His obedience is ours through faith. And as we trust in his obedience, covering us, his righteousness for us, his forgiveness for us, then we're also called to follow his example as the grateful response of faith. Trusting Christ, we learn to follow his example. Even when I don't, and perhaps especially when I don't understand God's plan, when I don't understand what the outcome of my actions will be when I can't see the end from the beginning, but I know what God tells me to do in this particular situation, we can resist the temptation to say, I know better. I don't have to forgive. I can nurse my anger. I can nurse my bitterness. I can build up the case against this other person in my own heart and hold on to it deeply. We, we can resist that temptation when we see that God has not done that towards us. He's not held our sins against us, but instead has shown us abundant mercy 
in forgiving our sins and welcoming us as his beloved children. And when we know that for ourselves, we can trust his promises as they're confirmed at the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. If the father did not spare his own son, then I can trust him that he is good and that I can obey him by faith that he will care for me. It's a beautiful illustration of that kind of faith, trusting in what Jesus has done on my behalf so that I can receive mercy from God, and then trusting him into obedience in the hard places. Uh, some of you may have seen the, the recent production of The Hiding Place, a story about Corey ten Boom and her family, uh, Dutch Christians who hid Jews and through them rescued six, seven, eight hundred Jews during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. Uh, Corrie ten Boom wrote a book about her experience called The Hiding Place. I'll go ahead and admit that I haven't read the whole book, but I've read most of it, read parts of it, enough to give you this illustration. Uh, in her story, she, she and her family suffered greatly for basically giving refuge to Jews uh, during the Nazi occupation. She and her sister and her father and her brother were all arrested. Her father died shortly after his arrest. She and her sister were taken off to a concentration camp uh, and suffered there. Her sister Betsy died as a result of that time there. Corey lived. Corey survived and was, was, was released. And after her experience, she spent some time traveling and teaching the message of God's forgiveness and God's, God's grace, and how he calls us to forgive our enemies. And in one of these instances where she was speaking to a group of people, uh, she saw in the crowd a man uh, with kind of a plain overcoat on and a, a felt hat, and she immediately recognized his face, that he was one of the guards who had been at the concentration camp where she and her sister uh, had been, where her sister died. She's giving this message about forgiveness, God's grace in Jesus and his call to forgiveness. And afterwards, this man walks up to her. He clearly does not recognize her. He does not know. Uh, I mean, he's heard her talk about being at Robinsbrook where he was a guard, but he does not remember her from his time there, but she remembers him. She couldn't forget. And as he comes up to her after this message, he says, I heard you talk about Robinsbrook, I was there. I was a guard. Of course, she knew that. And he says, since then, I've become a Christian. This is like 1947, okay? So very soon after World War II. He says, since that time, I've, I've become a Christian, and I've recognized the things that I did and uh, would like to ask for your forgiveness. Fräulein, will, will you forgive me? sticks his hand out to her, and uh, as she tells the story, she recounts the mental conversation inside her head. Struggling to act on faith to carry out the very things that she had been encouraging others to do, to forgive, uh, to forgive this one who had done so much against her and, and against her sister who had died. And her dialogue inside her head went something like this. Lord, I can't do it. I don't feel like forgiving this person. But I'm going to extend my hand, going to offer forgiveness, but you're going to have to do the rest. 
Uh, Jesus, you're going to have to do the rest for me. And as she extended her hand and embraced the man's hand and, and said, I forgive you, she said it was like a jolt of electricity going through her body as she felt Jesus warm her heart towards this man who had been her enemy and offer him forgiveness. The only way we can do that as God's people and not refuse it to others, not be like Jonah and refuse to obey God's command, in this case to offer mercy to people he thought were wicked and cruel and deserved something else. The only way we can do that is by seeing, uh, in some ways imitating Corrie Boom's actions. Jesus, I can't do this on my own. You're, you're going to have to do it through me. But I believe that I have forgiveness from you. And if you've forgiven me, then I don't have the right to withhold it from others because you have shown mercy to me. And if God has shown mercy to me, it does not terminate with me, but is meant to flow out of us to others. Freely, we have received. Now let us freely give. Would you pray with me?